There is no official Wormwood Apocalypse trailer yet, but that was the audio from the very short 30-second teaser trailer, which was released recently. It has explosions, baseball bats, machine guns, Bianca Brady's badass brook, and a cyborg fucking zombie, and you should really check it out if you haven't seen it already. Hello, and welcome to the Cinema Australia podcast. My name is Matthew Eels. In this episode, I'm joined by Wormwood Apocalypse director and co-writer Keir Roach-Turner, who, along with his brother Tristan, has gifted us with one of the most explosive action franchises since the original Mad Max and its sequels. As I said in my recent review, no one is making movies in Australia with the same energy that these two have. I was lucky enough to take an early look at Wormwood Apocalypse recently, and I'm thrilled to report that it's just as good as the original. You can read my full review over at cinemaaustralia.com.au. Not only is Keir one of Australia's best filmmakers, he's also a great interviewee. To me, this felt more like a conversation between two mates than an official interview. Here, we go back to the beginnings of the Wormwood mythologies and how it all came about, Working so closely with his brother and why family connection is a strong theme throughout his films. His love of Mad Max, balancing action, violence and comedy in the one film, and killing off one of the umbilical brothers. Wormwood Apocalypse had its Australian premiere at the Brisbane International Film Festival recently and will screen at the Sydney Film Festival on Saturday the 6th of November and Monday the 8th of November. Unfortunately, everyone else is going to have to wait a little bit longer as the film won't be released until early next year. Anyway, enjoy. Here, Roach Turner, thank you for joining the Cinema Australia podcast. I'm very excited to be speaking with you. I'm, exp- I'm, I'm excited to be speaking to you too. Um, Cinema Australia is so super supportive of Australian content. You guys have always been so nice about our films, even our short films. I'm really, really happy to be on this podcast. Awesome. That's great to hear. Hey, um, I was lucky enough to take an early look at uh, Wormwood Apocalypse and I loved it so much that I watched it twice back to back. I think the really? only other, I think the only other film that I ever watched back to back was the original Scream back in '96. So that's saying something. Wow! <laughs> oh, I mean, good company. Me and Wes. <laughs> yeah. Me and Wes are the only ones. Oh, Matthew, that's such a huge compliment, man. And that that means you really liked it. I mean, you don't. Wow, that's so good. Yeah. Uh, wow. Yeah. There's there's certainly a lot to love about it. Uh, I think the thing that I loved about it the most is that your energy and passion and enthusiasm for this film and these characters really oozes through the screen. And I can't help but get caught up in that. Uh, you can really feel it. So congratulations on this one, man. Uh, you know, you guys have made a killer film here. Thank you, Matthew. That's so nice. Yeah, and it is It is a thing. It's a weird thing with the Wormwood world. It's like we, we just, whether we whether it was hard work or luck, probably more luck than anything else. Like we just lucked into this world that is kind of really cool. And me and my brother just, we just seemed to know it like the back of our hand. I think one of the good things was like originally we we sort of had the premise of Mad Max meets Dawn of the Dead and we adore those worlds so much, you know, this post-apocalyptic car crazy world of Mad Max and, you know, just the fun zombie apocalyptic world that Ramiro set up back in Dawn of the Dead. Um, and it just, I don't know, it's, everything just clicked. So writing on any Wormwood project is just the easiest thing and it's so fun. And I'm really glad to hear that some of that energy might have 
made it onto the big screen here. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Um, I, I want to go back for a moment to the original Wormwood, uh, which premiered in 2014 and released to the public in 2015. Uh, you and your brother had never made a feature film before. Can you remember how you were feeling around that time of its release? I mean, we were just young and stupid and just happy to have made a film. Like, you got to understand, we made this on the smell of an oily rag. Like, we shot it over a three-and-a-half period, three-and-a-half-year period, much like sort of Peter Jackson made Bad Taste. We heard that he made Bad Taste over five years and he just shot it on weekends with mates. You know, he saved a bit of money and then he'd shoot a scene and then he'd save a bit of money and make a few alien heads and then shoot another scene. Um and we sort of did that with Wormwood. We shot a lot of Wormwood, like a chunk of Wormwood was shot in our mother's backyard and she did the catering. And so, like, we thought we'd just make this film and then just release it for free on YouTube and maybe one day we'd get to make a real film. But we didn't actually realise we were making a real film and, like, we finished it and it was, like, econ- like it was economically viable. Like, we sold it to Studio Canal. Like, we had no idea that would happen. So back in 2015 when we were sort of, like, releasing um, you know, in these global festivals, like we had, we had, a, we had a decent review from like the New York Times. I thought this was just going to be some free shit that we chucked up online. Like, so I mean, the whole thing was just this huge ride, and like we were just pinching ourselves for the whole sort of six month period of sort of festival release and then actual release. So I mean, we were just walking around shell shocked. <laughs> what were some of those scenes that uh, that you shot in your mum's backyard? Um, all of the shed stuff. So the first time you see Brooke um, in Wormwood One, like painting things, and her friend turns into a zombie, and then you know the soldiers come to get her out of the shed, and they inject her with something weird, and then knock her out. I mean, that's all just my mum's backyard shed. Wow. She must have been very yeah. supportive of this. She is like disgustingly supportive. Like she's <laughs> one of those just like super proud mums. Like yeah. she still talks about it. And, like, the bullet holes that we punched into her shed door were, like, in the shed door for, like, literally the next four years. And so she'd always be like, come around and fix those bloody holes. But she'd always tell the story. And you could tell she kind of liked the holes too yeah. because she was proud of her boys, you know. Yeah, I, bet no, she she was, was, uh, I bet she was proud was to show really. them off to her friends when they came around. She, and son. she'd pretend she was angry about them, but she'd want everybody to understand the whole story. They shot most of the film in my backyard and I did the catering and I did the best catering on their film. And look at these holes, these terrible boys. Look what they've done. Oh, but aren't they good? You know, like she, <laughs> she, she got a lot of mileage out of it. Yeah. Oh, that's fantastic. You mentioned uh, the reviews in the New York Times then and the film was very well received and, and it gained uh, a cult following quite quickly. Did you get mm. caught up in that at the time? Were you reading every review and, and following every post about the film? Oh, yeah, like especially young filmmakers, like, yes. you know, everybody reads their reviews and they read every one of them and all the all the good ones, you know, just absolutely bolster the ego and all the bad ones go straight to the heart and you can remember every single negative thing. My favourite online review was... Um, this film makes me ashamed to be Australian. No. I'm just like, really? This film? Really? Like, that's the one? Like, oh, I mean, look at the history of Australia with the atrocities and the war and God knows what. This is the one that makes you ashamed of being Australia. What um, were some of the negative okay. things they were saying? Oh, look, that's just a troll, man. That was just yeah. a YouTube troll. It just makes me laugh, you know. And, like the, you know, you go on YouTube, and you spend like a year of your life doing a short film or whatever, and the first comment is, what a piece of shit. <laughs> and you're just like, shit, what am I doing this for? But who gives a shit? Like when you've got a decent review from Variety and Hollywood Reporter, 
and like Joe blog 79 from Czechoslovakia thinks it's a piece of shit. Who cares? Yeah. It's like, Hey dude, I, I'm going to, uh, I'm going to concentrate more on uh, what the New York times said. Um, last night I had a look back on the Australian films that were released in 2015 um, mm. and Wormwood was released alongside some pretty heavy Australian dramas, uh, like holding the man last cab to Darwin, strange land and, uh, and partisan. And from what I can tell, there wasn't another horror film released that year that had as much press or buzz as Wormwood. Was that one of the reasons you were so keen to make a film like Wormwood? Because Australia just wasn't really producing a lot of them at the time? Yeah, well, so I'd forgotten that we'd released alongside. Some of those are really good films. Yeah. Um, Yeah, Australia does have a tendency to make dark films. Like a lot of our stuff are about, you know... (laughs) you know, some horrible things, a documentary about somebody's Bulgarian grandmother or, you know, heroin addiction in Campbelltown. And, you know, like it's really nice to just have something that just goes, hey, let's just have some fun again. Let's yeah. let's have a big rip-roaring fun movie that is like very world-building um, uh, but is also good enough that it isn't, you know, just farcical. Yes. Um, and I'll, I'll be honest, like one of the things that made me want to make my, um, uh, uh, Wormwood was like... Uh, we just hadn't had another Mad Max film in too long and it was just pissing me off. Like we hadn't had Fury Road at that point. So um, uh, we just went, well, let's, let's us just do it. Like let's just dress up in leather armour and helmets and bats and shotguns and just make like a Mad Max vehicle and go out and just do it ourselves because George is taking too long. Yeah. Um, ironically, we took so long <laughs> shooting our film that George shot and released Fury Road um, before we even got to release it. But I, I even like that. I like that he had this towering inferno of genius sitting there and then there was this tiny little low-budget alternative kind of spin-off from some of the, the stuff that ours was. Ours is more like the stuff he was doing in the, the, the 70s and 80s. Yeah, yeah. Um, and Fury Road was this, you know, just, oh, my God, it's one of the best action films of all time. Yeah. But it was still nice to have this other one that was released alongside going, oh, yeah, but... But, you know, George started as this low-budget, um, uh, I mean, like ambulance driver who yeah. just decided to make a film. Doctor, sorry, I shouldn't say ambulance driver. Yeah. But, um, yeah, let, let us yeah. remind you of uh, George's roots. Yeah, but I think it was his, uh, yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. And um, I think he was, a, he was he was a doctor in training at the time, or maybe he'd done a couple of years, but I think it was his rides in the ambulance where he was seeing severed arms and legs on the road that inspired him and... Um, uh, Byron Kennedy to go out and make Mad Max, you know, the violence on the road that he was seeing um, on his on his day job. Um, but, yeah, like, yeah, just to remind, you know, people of the kind of films that we made back in the 70s and 80s, that kind of exploitation thing, mm. um, you know, and, and, like, there's still a lot of filmmakers who kind of do it, but, like, they're, um, I don't know, it's, I, I just wanted to see something that, that had that feeling but also had a bit of serious cinema behind it, um, yes. you know, because I have a huge obsession you know with David Lynch and um, uh, Martin Scorsese and you know Fellini and all that stuff I'm a cinema obsessive Um, and so I wanted to make something that could have all of the fun of Mad Max but still allow me to sort of flex my little muscles trying to be a trying to be a sort of art house filmmaker at the same time and that's you know that's really what Wormwood is. Um, I got to I watched uh, Mad Max recently in a cinema with Steve Bisley uh, because he lives in Perth oh, wow. at the moment. Goose, yeah, the goose. And uh, <laughs> nice. I think I've, I think I I I've realised. Oh, sorry, I think I've seen that film more times in the cinema than any other movie. And the more I watch it, the more I realise it truly is a perfect film. Why do you think Mad Max stands the test of time? Like the filmmaking is just 
really good. I mean, you, even just the way he cuts some of those um, uh, like car chase scenes, like that that opening ten minute sequence with the Night Rider out on the highways is phenomenal. Um, and I actually I heard he cut silently he didn't use uh any kind of music or anything he cut it like a silent film because he wanted uh, just the energy of the visuals to drive everything and then they laid in the sound later on and so if you go back and you look at the edits like they're so sharp um I mean this guy's just so good with the camera Mel Gibson is just at his peak sexy you know you look you, one two seconds of looking at that guy you know he's going to be a global star in the next yeah. couple of years yeah. which is what happened yeah. Steve Bisley is hilarious um, Hughes Key, what's his name? Key Hughes yeah. uh, played the, um, uh, uh, not the Knight Rider, uh, the Toe Cutter. Um, yeah. He's just like one of the best bad guys ever. Like he's so brilliantly campy and like almost homoerotic in times, yeah. um, but so in completely dramatically, theatrically over the top. Um, the f- soundtrack, the music, like the epic nature, you know, the fact that George Miller went out and, you know, he really got the hero's journey thing perfect, you know, it's like the perfect hero. The guy loses his family and then goes out for revenge. It's the perfect emotional um, package. Um, And just nobody had been able to create a post-apocalyptic world that felt that real. I mean, it's using some of the elements that Roger Corman set up in Death Race 2000, but it just feels like at the same time futuristic and grounded, like you go and I recognise the cars and the people, they just look like 70s Australians, but just the way that it was set up, you know, you just you really felt that that world was a real place, you know, they said how they set up the cops and the road gangs and the biker gangs and just the lawlessness and recklessness of it. Um, it's just a damn damn good film you know what i mean and it's like like it's like when somebody says why is jaws so popular it's like it's just a really good movie it's like somebody goes okay let's make the best shark movie that could possibly exist and they did it and that's what george did with with mad max he goes let's make the best possible um you know sort of post-apocalyptic car um uh, action violent movie um you know um and then you know he made a movie so good that you know um you know, it set up the the um, the possibility for you know arguably one of the greatest action films of all time, Mad Max yeah. Two: Road Warrior. Um, you know, where you've just got the setup is perfect. You know, you, you don't need to watch it. Um, you don't need to watch uh, um, uh, Mad Max One. You, you kind of like they did all the setup in Mad Max One for this world to just exist, where this lone guy um, just goes on this journey um, and. I don't know. I don't know, Matt. It's just good filmmaking. It really. Is. I mean, that's your job. You're the critic. I don't know. I'm just. I'm just the filmmaker drooling at like how brilliant a piece of art it is. You know, it's hard on the answer. You summed it up very well. Hey, yeah. Uh, I want to ask you about your relationship uh, with your brother. Did you two get along growing up uh, together, or, or, or did you, is that something that developed over time? Yeah. Um, well, there's three brothers. So there's um, David is the oldest, I'm the middle, Tristan's the youngest. And we all get on like we've all got on really well and we all get on really well. And one of the reasons we get on is we're all completely different. Um, David's like the brains. He's just like this brilliant sort of genius. Um, I'm the middle sort of sensitive artistic type. 
And Tristan down there was always really good at sports and he's a man's man. So we all have very different energies. Um, and so nobody was competing for any space, you know, because we all did a different thing. Um, so together we're like Voltron, you know, we always came to anytime us three brothers get together, it's just sort of unstoppable. Um, and that's how I feel with Tristan when I'm making a film with him. He's just always got my back. Um, we're very different people, but we all we grew up on the same influences. So we both watched Alien you know, like 60 times in a year when we were kids. Um, we both loved Mad Max. We both, you know, I mean, he, he would just sit in my room because he's like, you know, three years younger than me. He had to watch what I wanted to watch and I'd be sitting there <laughs> watching, you know, Kubrick films. I'd go through all the Fellinis and sort of be dip in and out and go, oh, that one's shit, that one's good. Oh, this one's interesting. Um, you know, and then I'd make him watch all the Scorsese films and he'd watch everything that Lynch made. And so he unwittingly got a cinema education alongside me because I was so obsessed. Um and so, yeah, it just works, you know. Did you study film? Did you did you both study film? Or... Nah, Tristan was like an electrician. Yeah. But, like, he always was in my short films and helping me make short films when I was, like, you know, like running around with a little high eight camera. And he just always loved it. And his friends did too. Who doesn't like running around with a camera using tomato sauces, blood and making guns and pretending to punch each other. Like, that, I mean, that's the films that we made yeah. back then um, and nothing has changed, <laughs> to be completely honest with you. You're both credited as, as writers on this film and I'm always curious to know about the, the collaborative writing process um, because uh, people often have different ways of doing it. What's your collaborative process with Tristan and, and writing these films? Um, we get together and do very intense story sessions and we'll often work the board you know we'll get out a um like a, a sort of big writing board and write out all the beats for every scene um and we'll do a lot of very specific planning and structural stuff and then i sit down and write i can't write with somebody behind me i just i just have to do it myself it's like it's not really something i can do with a, with a person sitting behind me but um yeah so i'll just write the script and then he'll give me notes and then we just um we sort of pair off into the more standard writer-producer development um, process. But, yeah, we come up, especially with Wormwood, is, you know, we, we come up with everything together and then I just go and sort of map it out in, in script form. Right. Well, where does the comedy come from here? Let me let me ask you a question. Do you reckon it should have just been a little funnier? Do you reckon it should have been like 10%, maybe 15% funnier? No. No, I think, I think yeah, it's absolutely, Oh, you reckon? I think it's absolutely perfect because I think it's perfect because when it is funny, it's funny. And right. uh, there are no moments in it where, um, you know, it's trying to be funny. So I That's feel like if you would put more in it, you know, who knows, it, it could have gone the wrong way. It might have, it might have fallen flat. It's funny because I, um, I, I would like it to be 20% more funny. Right. But it wasn't and we didn't push it. And I think that was the right move. Mm -hmm. um, we made a film called Necrotronic where, like, um, they wanted it to be funnier than it was and, like, a lot of the humour was forced. And I, I can't even watch that movie anymore. I'm just like, oh, my God, it's so forced. And that was one thing that we sat down and decided on this one. It's just like, look, like like with the first one, if it's funny, let it be funny. You know, yes. we can plan for the humour, but if it doesn't hit, doesn't matter, that's fine. Let it be what it needs to be. Mm -hmm. And this one was just less funny. Like it was a like we didn't have Leon Birchill there giving, giving us a laugh every seven minutes. <laughs> um, the first one just felt a little bit more... Um, humorous and, and it's really interesting because it's the same breakdown as Mad Max 1 and Mad Max 2. Mad Max 1 is like it's really funny like Goose is funny, yes, yes. The, the toe cut is funny, even the Knight Rider is funny. Um, it, it plays for laughs more um, 
and the second one kind of isn't funny. Like every and but but it's just situationally absurd. And yeah. sometimes there's some wonderful ironies at play. But it ain't a comedy, you know. And I I think um, I think it's the same breakdown with these two movies. You know, the first one's a lot more freewheeling, and the second one just gets down to business. Yes. Um, yeah, it's good because some people wanted more humor. Some people are fine with it. Um, my wife thinks we should wish wishes apocalypse was a bit funnier. <laughs> I don't know. It's a funny way, but I, I just, I, I just think you can't force the laughs, Matt. Like if you no, force that's the right. laughs, you're, and if you're you dead do, in the water, yeah. as I said, if you do, you are risking those jokes falling flat. If you, if you oh. try to force them, but yeah, no, I think it's the yeah. perfect balance of action, horror, comedy, and everything else in between. Um, oh, yeah, that's really great. good to hear. Yeah. Uh, who's the boss on set out of you two? <laughs> or was it Blake? Me. Blake's the boss, I guess, on this one. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know what? We're all A types on set. Um, Blake was pretty good. Blake, Blake kept away. He, he didn't. He didn't jump on set. He was really good right at the start. He said, "Look, I'm just going to get the hell out of you guys' way. Mm. I'm going to do a lot of the hard work to make sure this is a professional production. And you've got the budget that you need, and you've got the backup that you need. You know, I will come in in post production and make sure everything works perfectly. And if I'm needed, I'm there." But this is your film and I want you guys to just make He's the first producer I've given a script to. He finished the script and goes, let's make it. Not, not a single note. Yeah. He just yeah. goes, let's shoot it, like, immediately. I want to shoot this tomorrow. I've never had that happen. So creatively, he was just so great. But me and Tristan and Blake are all very A-type personalities. Um, and so there's some, you know, emotional negotiation that needs to occur. Um, yes. Me and Tristan try and be very respectful of each other um, because we both have that tendency to want to take charge. Yes. But he knows that, like, I've always wanted to be a film director my whole life, so a huge amount of myself is wrapped up in creativity and, and all of that kind of stuff. So he does try and stay out of that stuff as much as he can. Um but he's also a guy who really knows what he wants. And, like, especially with Wormwood, I trust his opinion more than anybody. Um, and oftentimes um, it, it, he's just got an instinct for this world. And so if he says something, I'll really think about it. Um, and what, what, I tend, what we tend to do creatively is if, if we're disagreeing on a thing pretty full on, um, whoever's got the most passion like the other one will just back off um, because if Tristan really, really doesn't like a thing, he's probably right and so I back off. Yeah. And same goes with me. If I'm super passionate, he'll usually sort of do the respectful thing and, and step aside. Um, and then if we really both don't like a thing, we just have to, it's that simple. It's like, all right, well, let's not do that. What else can we do? And then yeah. we just come up with some other weird, crazy shit and what does it matter, you know? I mean, any given scene, any given problem, there's 15 different solutions. So, you know, two don't work. Let's just pick one of the other 12, you know? Um, just to our listeners there who are wondering who Blake is, uh, we're talking about Blake Northfield, uh, the, the producer of Wormwood and who recently produced Streamline as well. He's, he's on a real roll at the moment. Um He's like ten years younger than me, and he's made like oh, four he? films, yeah. five films now. He's yeah. made five, six, seven. Yeah. Jesus, like he's made two documentaries. The guy is just a powerhouse. Yeah, yeah. I don't think I've seen anything he's made that I don't like yet. So, um, I told him that recently. I said to him, "Mate, you're going to send me a film soon, and I'm not going to like it, and I'm going to have to actually tell you that I don't like this film." So, <laughs> I'm not looking forward no, to that day. He's got very good instincts, I have yeah. to say. Um, yeah. yeah. Um, before we get into Apocalypse, I want to talk about Wormwood Chronicles of the Dead, which was a, a proposed sequel series. What happened there? The TV series? Yeah. Um, yeah. Like, 
Team Team Jesus shot a trailer for it, right? Yeah, and it yeah. was like the most successful thing that we've ever done by far, significantly. Amazing. Like we, I mean, we released that trailer online, or the proof of concept, or teaser, or whatever you want to call it. Mm. And man, within a, within three or four weeks, thirty-seven million people had watched it, like mm. via Facebook and various you know streaming platforms and YouTube and stuff. So there was a huge um, excitement about that, and then I'm just like. Like TV is just harder to get up than I than I thought. Yeah. We took we took it around everywhere, and we could have got it made. But what I wanted to do is I wanted to make something. I wanted to make something that, like, I want to make like an Australian Breaking Bad. It's like, look, if we're gonna do TV, let's really do it. Yeah. Um, and let's make something that is like really special for this country. You know, we've got a possibility to make something that's like a Mad Max with monsters TV series. Like, don't make it cheap. You know, we don't need like a Game of Thrones budget, but you know, at least give us a. Oh, I don't know. Um, give us a Squid Game budget. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Just yeah. give us a budget where we can make it reasonably. And we were, were like the financing partners that we were sort of talking to. It was just like it just wasn't quite enough to feel comfortable. And like the the way I look at it is like, um, if you're going to make a ten part series like the absolute bare bones minimum that you can make it for is, is, you know, is about 5 million, preferably six. If you want to do it properly, you need 10. And like these sound like big numbers to the layman or to a normal person, but like that money goes really quickly. Like basically you're making 10 films. That's what you're doing. And you've got to do it really quickly. And, you know, it's, you know, we've, you know, we've got to build all these sets and all the monsters and, you know, there's monsters in every scene and, you know, the production design and all of the VFX and like the money just goes through your fingers so quickly. And so we knew unquestionably that we could probably raise a couple of million for a film and do it really, really, really well. Or we could possibly not raise six million because that's a lot of money. And even if we did, you know, who knows if I'd be able to direct every episode. I wouldn't have the creative control. Like, we just didn't We just didn't feel confident with any of the people that we were talking to that this was going to come off and come off well. And the one thing I don't want to do is make an average Wormwood TV series. So if we're going to do it, it has to be with partners who make me absolutely confident that, like, we're going to be able to pull it off together. Mm. And I just didn't feel that. And so we went, oh, fuck it, let's just make a sequel. And so when Blake came along with his plans, it was just like this is 100% the fit and we should absolutely be making a movie with this gentleman, which is what we did. Yeah. So we, we, we took all the ideas, all the best ideas for the TV series and just put it into one movie as opposed to a 10-part series. You're listening to the Cinema Australia podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud or cinemaaustralia.com.au. Yeah. So Wormwood Apocalypse, uh, you know, there's so much going on in this film uh, that describing the synopsis can go in multiple directions. Uh, what's it about in your own words? How, how do you describe it to people? It's about a lone military man who sort of lives on his own in this, you know, sort of electrified fenced enclosure surrounded by hundreds of zombies um, who kind of works for the military um, but he has doubts um, and he's delivering these A-negative survivors to these sort of military types who tell him that he's working on the cure. Um, and as the film progresses um, and as he comes into contact with, um, you know, these small group of uh, survivors, um, 
he starts to realise that maybe he's working for the bad guys. Mm -hmm. um, and so he's involved with delivering this girl played by Tessia Zalar, um, who's this sort of hybrid zombie, um, much like Brooke was in the first film, to the military. Um, and he runs into her sister who half convinces uh, and half cajoles him at gunpoint to uh, help her get her sister back. And so in, in, and in getting that girl back, he feels like he can basically get his soul back um, yes. yeah. uh, and, um, you know, sort of redress the balance through the evil deeds that he's done, even though he was doing the evil deeds under the, under the idea of a, a lie. And so it's a classic Grecian uh, sort of hero story about this guy, you know, who's made a pact with the underworld who has to uh, redeem himself. It's a classic story of redemption and Brooke and Barry from the first film are kind of involved, um, you know, like these, you know, avenging gods that come in uh, to, to help him do what he needs to do. That's a great way of putting it. Brilliant. <laughs> um, uh, last night I was digging back through the Cinema Australia archives and I came across this, <laughs> I completely forgot I'd published it, but I came across this article that Tristan wrote for Cinema Australia back in 2015. Huh. And it was, oh, about wow. the make, yeah, it was about the making of the film. And he mentions the amount of favours from friends and family that were called in to help make that film. Was it different yeah. this time around considering the bigger budget? It was, but like, you know, when you say big budget for a low budget Australian film, a low budget Australian film is like a micro budget Canadian film. It's <laughs> yes, just like yeah. there's not a lot of money, man. And yeah, like we yeah. we didn't pull in as many favors, um, but there were still a lot of favors pulled in. Um, and you know, people were working for you know, I'm going to be honest, less than what they were used to. Yes. But one of the great things about making a, a, a loved cult classic um, is people are like, you know what, I'm going to make Wormwood and then I'll go off and I'll work for Baz Luhrmann and, and sort of make up the money, you know, <laughs> on, on that one. Or I'm going to go and do a, a Honda commercial and make it up. Like people wanted to work on this film, mm -hmm. which is, you know, um, one of the reasons why I'm so polite to everybody on set because you just know it's just like I know you usually make five times in this but hey isn't this fun you know yes, and, yeah you know, you, you, this this is a fun set and it's going to be awesome and it's going to be just like you hoped it would be when you went to film school um, yeah. and that's the promise that we can make and the other promise that you the other thing that happens is you get six days in and we had this thing where we had a big screen always on set playing rushes and so every now and again you know you'd get like a um, you know, like a best boy or a lighting dude or like one of the um, art department people just standing in front of the screen and you could see the excitement on their face. And then the next week they'd come in and they'd just work five times as hard. Mm -hmm. um, they were happy to be there because you know you're making something good. And, you know, that's it's a rare thing, you know, in a, in a country where we, we don't have a huge film industry. Um, you know, we, we don't tend to make a huge amount of exciting things. And so just to be making something that you sort of dreamed that you might be able to make, you know, when you were younger is, is a good thing. And, you know, that's, that's how we can make it film, you know, how we can make films like this on such a low budget um, and get such amazing professionalism and attract, you know, just these phenomenal craftspeople um, to it. No one's making movies like you guys in Australia at the moment. And I appreciate it so much. Um, uh, 
I love this cast so much. Uh, everyone in this film I've got a real soft spot for. Um, they're all familiar faces, but they're not the same faces that we see on TV every night on Australian television or in uh, right. you know, every big budget Australian film. Uh, you were lucky to get a lot of the original cast back. Can you tell us about uh, getting those guys to come back on board? Or does it play into what you were just talking about, about that passion? Well, yeah, um, obviously we got Luke McKenzie from the first film. People will be a little bit confused by that because they're like, didn't he die in the first yeah. film? But, you know, we take care of that pretty yes. yeah. He plays the twin brother, yeah. the guy who died in the first film, that old chestnut, you know. Um, and we got, you know, um, uh, Bianca Brady and Jay Gallagher. Um, these people are my friends, so it's not like we get them back. I just email them on Facebook and go, <laughs> I, th I think it's happening. <laughs> and they're like, ooh, when? Um, and, and, then, and then we make another film. You know? yeah. I mean, I, I made a film with these guys. I filmed with them for three and a half years. Yes. Um, Luke and Jay were in my first short film, Roadrunner, um, back in 2008. So I've known those, those guys for well over 10 years. Um, Jay's been in a bunch of my short films. Obviously, he was in Wormwood. Um, he had a short, 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 a tiny role in Necrotronic. Um, you know, they're, they're just mates. And so it's not so much like getting the cast back together as getting the gang back together. You know, it's just like a big extended six-week party where we get to get, you know, get to see each other for a long period of time, you know, you know, without mum calling us in for dinner, you know. Um, that's what it feels like. It feels like we just get to play, you know. And 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 weirdly, even when the other cast come in, you know, I've never met these people, but I don't know whether it's our set or the Wormwood thing or whatever, it just feels like we're just getting to play. Yeah. Um, it's like we get to play cops and robbers for six weeks and everybody very quickly gets into that rhythm and you know the actors come in a bit nervous going oh what kind of fucking director is this guy going to be and they very quickly realize oh no we're just playing cowboys and indians you know what i mean it's oh cool cool we, let's just relax great where's my gun you know um that's it yeah it's just so fun uh, some of those uh, new faces uh you know big jackie ryan who i absolutely love and uh and tassie Uzala. Um, who are both getting better and better with every performance, I reckon. But it's, uh, to, it's just to see as a lot like blew me away. Like yeah. I, I knew she was good, yeah. and I was like, yeah, she's gonna be good. But like she, every scene she was in, she was just like up to eleven. I just, I was, I mean, it sounds bad to say I was surprised by her performance because she's a wonderful actor. But like she really brought something that I was not expecting. I was very, very happy with her. Yeah. Jake Ryan is like a force of nature. He's like. <laughs> He's like a juggernaut hewn from Australian film. Um, he's, I love him so much. You know, you meet him and he's this big bloke with like the deepest voice you've ever heard. Um, and I would, you know, you're slightly intimidated going, oh, this guy's, you know, God, he's a bit scary. And then you realize he is literally the most beautiful person on set. Like he's just a big, He's a big, beautiful girl. I love him so much. He's so sensitive and beautiful. Oh, and just an, he's, a, he's a consummate craftsman. Like just he's one of those actors who just he's got a 97% hit rate. Like everything he does, his movements, his vocal range, like he's, he's as good an actor as anybody, you know, I've ever worked with. Mm -hmm. um, and Shante uh, Barnes-Cohen, who hadn't done a lot of acting, she'd been in like one TV thing and, and was quite good in it. Um, but yeah, she just came in and just owned the audition. She was she like really the steals first the show person. Here. She really steals the show. I, I think uh, she's she's really really good in this, and I think she's going to go far. She's got a presence. It's a weird thing. As soon as I saw her in the audition, I was like, "Oh, who's that? Like, what's she looks like a princess? Like, she's got some kind of bizarre presence that 
yeah, I guess you call it a star quality. Mm. Um, and yeah, she came, She was the first person we auditioned, and I was like, wow, well, she's pretty good. All right, well, let's look at the other hundred. And it's like, nah, man, like she's she's the one, like yes. unquestionably, just head and shoulders. And yeah. sometimes that happens. You know, the first person you see is just the it is the right person. Um, yeah. But yeah, she and she's untrained, hundred percent untrained, but she just has a. Um, a natural ability for it and she cried real tears in her audition and there weren't even any real tears asked for in the script and i was just like oh this 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 young lady is loaded for bear let's put a camera in front of that face immediately <laughs> um i've got a few more questions here uh, oh sorry know. and nick boschier oh, how yes, can i yes. leave out nick boschier yes honestly yes. one of the funniest people in australia you know one half of the monday hipsters did the moth effect recently um he he starred in a viral video that we were all watching on the Wormwood set called Trent from Punchy. Oh, yeah. And we yeah, were having yeah. long-running arguments. Like, people are going, oh, that's just an actor, dude. Like, I know a friend of you. And I'm like, there's no way that's an actor. That is not an actor. And eventually it turned out it was an actor. It yeah. was Nick Pogamboshia just doing a part. And um, ever since then, I've, I've written various things for him and we've been trying trying to get together. And finally, we got to give him this part as, like, a mad scientist. I was stoked to get him. And he was so fun to work with. Yeah, great cast. He's, he's absolutely perfect in this role. Uh, yeah, feels like it was made for him and we did like i don't know if you know but we have dave collins um and um, like one of the umbilical brothers in this film yeah i saw i saw him credited but i just couldn't pick what part he actually played he is a friend of michael lira our composer and lira goes hey i know dave collins and he wouldn't mind being a zombie and i was just like what yes um And, like, Dave emailed me and I was like, what part do you want? Just pick anything. Like, what what do you want? And he goes, look, dude, like, I'm doing a bunch of shows. Like, I'll just give you a date. I don't care what zombie I play as long as you kill me. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, okay, well, we'll work at casting. And he goes, no, 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 fucking forget that. Just me and you, man. Like, I don't even want to get paid. I'll just drive down, kill me, and then I'll go and do my show. And that's what he did. He drove down from Canberra. He did a show the night before, um, got up 5 o'clock, drove all the way down from Canberra, Got into makeup. It took four hours to zombie him up. Came out. We blew his head off. Um, he shook my hand, hugged me, and said, "Okay, send me the footage when it's done." Um, and then he he drove back to Canberra and did a show that night. Like the guy is just crazy, and he's so funny and so nice. He's doing a video compilation of on-screen deaths of David Collins, and he's going, "I just want my pièce de résistance." Like, but my only thing I ask is that you give me a really good death so that it can be part of this. You know, Dave Collins dies on-screen montage. And I was just like, "Wow! Like, what a what a dude!" So, where was that in the film? At what point? Where where should uh, viewers be looking out for that? Um, there's a scene where um, I think it's just after. Bianca and Jay turn up in the film. They cut to this weird place called the Pill Factory where they're sort of manufacturing these weird pills that I won't go into. But um, outside that factory are some soldiers just minigunning, like, walking zombies. And so you see Dave Collins kind of walking towards them and he gets his head blown off. And that's... That's that's him. Yeah. Excellent. <laughs> and um, it's a nice juicy close up. Like you, you get to see his face and everything. It's really fun. He must love it. Um, I, I didn't notice it so much the first time I watched Road of the Dead uh, and Apocalypse uh, because I got so caught up in the action and the violence. But there is this huge emphasis on on family in both of these films. Everyone is everyone's pretty much related, or you know, there's some family connection there, brother or sister or something like that. Is that something that you and Tristan both talk about during the writing of this film, or, or did it just turn out that way? 
No, it's a theme. And it's funny because if you look at all directors, they all have themes, but it takes you a little while to work out what you I had no idea about that um, in um, Wormwood. There's a, um, a, a scriptwriter who I work with a lot called Nicole Dade, and she, she has helped us a lot with like structure and stuff over the years. And there was a few projects in where she sort of stopped during a story session and said, you know what your themes are? It's always family. You're always, you're obsessed with family, brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers. And, and you know, even if it isn't family, there's always this dis disparate group of people who come together, you know, to, to kind of form a twisted family to do a thing. Mm -hmm. And, yeah, it is definitely a theme of mine because family is more important, you know, to, to, than anything to me. Like, you know, my mother and us three boys, um, you know, with children of divorce, I have a very good relationship with my dad. You know, it's all it, that's all good. But like, um, I think mum and us three boys were just like super close growing up because all we had was each other. And my mum was, um, she was just somebody who just emphasised family. And, um, you know, we, we always came first. Um, and she always made sure that we made sure that each other came first, you know, so it was really, it was more important to her than anything that we have a good relationship and, and we do. So my brother's uh, so important to me and that just, I mean, how is that not going to find its way into every script that I write? You know? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's really beautiful to hear. That's, that's great. Um, I want to wrap this up uh, with a few uh, industry questions here. Um, mm -hmm. Part one of the Australian feature film summit took place recently. And the big question asked was how to increase cinema audiences for Australian films. Do you have an opinion on that or, or any suggestions? Uh, if I had the secret to that, I'd probably have more money in the bank. <laughs> um, I mean, that's the question, isn't it? Yeah. I, I don't know. My answer is Wormwood Apocalypse, you know. Um, I, I don't know. It, and, and, like, it's, 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 I'm, like, literally the worst person to ask because I'm a horror film director. Um, that's what I'm known for. And every time I go to make a film in Australia, you know, the financiers say the same thing. Well, you know, it's great that you make these and I'm sure it'll be successful, but nobody in this country is going to give a shit because they don't come out for horror. Um, I mean, which is not true because we have a very big fan base here, um, but they don't theatrically come out. They just they just don't. Um, you know, it seems like the audiences in Australia are very much kind of my mum and dad's age and, you know, they'll come out for things that interest them, you know, which tends toward films about them um, or, you know, lighthearted dramas or, you know, um, yeah, I mean, the, the, like, I don't make films for the Australian for an Australian audience, mm -hmm. um, Matt. Which sounds weird because I do make very Australian films. I have films that are quintessentially Australian, and I tend to prefer to do real Australian accents. And I cast real Aussie people, and I'm not afraid of, um, you know, making you know very culturally Australian specific movies. But I make movies for a global audience because I don't know what Australians are going to come out for, mm -hmm. but I know. What I've grown up loving um, and so to me it's not an emphasis so much on what do we need to change how can we target or market towards things my number one um, objective as a filmmaker is just to make a good film mm. and if I want to see it other people will want to see it because other people have grown up with the same cultural references as me and we're all basically the same girl or guy and um if i like it somebody else is going to like it um and that's that's really all 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 i can do um, yeah. and so when i'm when i'm planning to make a film 
you know, obviously I'm doing the usual stuff. You know, if I'm making Wormwood, we know that there's a fan base for that. It's an action horror film. There's a market for that and burn. Um, but, you know, every time, you know, you sit down and you try and plan for these things, but it's not in your hands. Um, like if one thing has taught me, you know, um, if one thing about, you know, f- from history that you can be taught is that, like, you can make the best thing in the world. It could still fail. Like, like have you ever seen John, John Carpenter's The Thing? Yes. Yeah. That film failed mm. at the box office, like mm. critically and commercially. And like, if you put that, if you put that on a double bill with Alien, mm. it's as good as Alien. Yes. So, like, why did one fail and one didn't? You know, I mean, they're both as good as each other. You know, I mean, it's it's almost impossible to to track these things. Yeah. Uh, do you keep up to date with Australian films? Have, have you seen anything recently that that stood out for you? <laughs> I saw the 4K restoration of Chopper. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Did you Not say that really. in the cinema? Uh, no, I didn't. No. I just rented it and watched it on my big screen at home. Right. So that film is just a, it's a tour de force. What a yeah. brilliant, brilliant film that is. Yeah. Um, uh, I, I don't really, you know, um, yeah, I, 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 I don't even watch, like, you know, I mean, look, like this week I watched Dr. Zhivago. Like I'm, I, I tend to look backwards, you know, I tend to concentrate on my own films and, you know, films from the 90s that I love yeah. and I'll go and watch, you know, an old Visconti that I never got around to watching or, you know, I'll watch La, La Dolce Vita for the 50th time. You know, I'm a guy who lives in the past. It's terrible. I've got time for my movies, my kids and old movies. And that's yes. <laughs> that's fine. That's fine. Um, I've got one final question here, I guess. Uh, has your mum seen uh, Apocalypse yet? And, and has, what does she think of it? She hasn't. She hasn't. No. Um, and she's really looking forward to it. So my mom and my dad and, and my stepmom and my whole extended family, all my cousins and friends and stuff, are going to come to the Sydney Festival premiere um, on the sixth at Event Cinemas. Mm. And my mum will love it. You know, my mum loves everything I do, you know. <laughs> so she's an e- easy audience. And I think my dad will love it too, you know. And, you know, I'm very, I'm just a lucky guy because my parents have always been very supportive. Even now they're still very supportive. I mean, my dad invested a lot of money in the first film. So did my mum. So did my whole family. You know, they've always been very supportive of what we do. Um, you know, my dad reads my scripts, you know, and gives me notes and stuff, you know. it's And so they, they just... They, they haven't seen it and they already love it, put it that way. Oh, that's lovely. Um, okay, Kia, thank you very much for joining the Cinema Australia podcast. It's been great chatting with you. I feel like I could have kept talking for another hour here. So um, uh, I wish you all the best with the film. And thank you too, Matthew. Cinema Australia, again, I said this at the start of the podcast, you, you, you've been so supportive and you support. I see you being supportive of all my friends' films and all the other films that are being made. And, and, and like you're so aptly named Cinema Australia. Yes. That's what you support. You guys are just so like um, such a positive energy in the industry. And I'm really, we're all very appreciative for, for what you guys do. So um, I'm very proud to, to, you know, been on this podcast with you. And I think you're doing awesome work. So thank you for that. That's beautiful, mate. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Cinema Australia podcast. You can keep up to date with all the latest Australian film news, reviews, features and interviews at cinemaaustralia.com.au.